Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. Welcome back to the Natural History Covered Podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, uh, Aaron. Almost called you Drew there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm still here. Yep. <laughs> Hello, how are you all? <laughs> good, good. Although I think I'm losing my marbles. I, I, I have been talking to you. For more than about an hour now before we recorded this bit, and I still can't remember who you are. Did you have any marbles to lose? Uh, well, interesting that you say that, actually. I was building a marble run earlier with uh, with, with my kid, and we lost most of the marbles. So yeah, technically, good. I have lost my marbles today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good sign, is it? Anyway, what have you been up to? Losing your marbles or not? Uh, no, not, not, not much this week. Not much this week. Um... Yeah, just been just been resting and recuperating mostly. No more spider fights in the downstairs toilets. No, that was cool though. That was very cool. I still have. Um, I haven't actually seen since that battle, the battle for the ages. I've not seen that cellar <laughs> spider. Um, ah. uh, seen plenty of other cellar spiders and house spiders around. Uh, it's probably but... sleeping off its. It's victory and probably yeah, a very probably. large meal. But our our friend, our window friend, uh, the orb spider who is on the inside, Wen is is the name. Um, that one's still about, and I, I enjoy watching her. Hmm. Very cool. Well, um, I've not really been up to a giant of mine either. I would say the most exciting thing was today I repotted some plants. Oh, very um, good. And split some of my house plants as well. So I've been getting all all propagatey and everything. I've 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 gone from having one alocasia um, to having four of them now, mm. and sp- split a calathea as well. And ah, oh, it's it's good. I've got <laughs> it's it's the reverse of that uh, Spice Girls song. When two become one, when one become four, <laughs> cloning the plants, but. Um, yeah, that was good. Went went uh, looking around a garden centre and then another garden centre in a vain attempt to try and find an exact plant that I saw once that seems to have disappeared from the entirety of North Devon. So, um, yeah, I'll get that one at some point. Oh, yeah. Evidently not, not at the moment. Um, other than that, I think... Uh, Oh, I, t- I did manage to actually set some footprint traps with some of my students. Um, yeah. And we managed to get some footprints of some, I'm guessing, I'm guessing it's a rat because the footprints are about the right size. Mm. The the, uh, the sort of area that was put down, let's face it, rats are everywhere, regardless of, of where you put it. It's the most likely thing to have got in there. Um, and the food that we used was seed, so it was always going to be rodenty that sort of went went into the uh, the traps, as it were. Um, they're really cool. It's using um, graphite uh, powder mixed with water to make like an ink, and then you put an ink pad in the uh, the sort of center, put paper sheets down uh, going into either end of the tunnel. You put your food in the direct center of the ink, so they've got to walk into the ink pad 
to get to the food. And then when they come back out, they walk on the uh, the paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Very pretty good. fun. Yeah, so I'm gonna um I'm gonna show them their results uh, next week and go. Okay, what animal have you found? Get them to ponder it, work it out, and uh, and go with the most likely suspects. So I'll be uh, using that as a as a nice bit of classroom activity on getting them to uh, to spot native wildlife, which has been fun <laughs> with them so far. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Hmm. Very good. Right. Well, shall we uh, shall we head into our news for this week? Yes, let's do it. Cool. It's the news. Right. Well, we're into this week's news. Aaron, tell us everything that's going on. Every week, we're inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad, and the extraordinary. So let's open up our Natural History Cupboard Newsreel, where we've compiled some of the more interesting headlines, and dive on in. Starting things off this week, uh, from BBC News, I've got Man Dies in Australia After Whale Strikes Boat. Uh, A whale has struck a boat and killed uh, a man, leaving another injured, police have said. They were fishing off La Perosi, that's roughly nine miles southeast of Sydney. Um, The alarm alarm was raised after the vessel was spotted, unoccupied, and circling, basically, with the the motor still on. They're not sure as to what whale has uh, caused this, but it would appear to be called a... they're, They're putting it down as a freak accident where the whale has... Struck the boat, basically. And from Business Insider, a tiny ice mouse with teeth the size of sand grains survived some of the coldest temperatures when dinosaurs roamed the Earth. So more than 70 million years ago, the icy realm that would become today's Alaskan Prince Creek Formation was positioned above the Arctic Circle and in winter would become a place of a four-month darkness. Whilst such a landscape would be inhospitable to most Dinosaurs did traverse the terrain, but Sycamus micros was no dinosaur. Instead, Sycamus micros was a rodent-like, warm-blooded mammal, mere inches in length and weighing only 11 grams, with teeth measuring just 1.5 millimetres at maximum. The find is quite accidental. Essentially, the fossils of larger animals were collected. Sediment was washed away to reveal the larger of the smaller fragments. And then the washed away sediment was sifted through under a microscope to find the tiniest fragments. Without this technique, animals such as Sycamus micros uh, would go unknown to science. Yeah. From popsci.com, I've got scientists have just rediscovered a rare fungi eating fairy lantern. Oh, the, the genus Thysmia. Uh, has a biographical spread and is still baffling uh, botanists. It's a very odd-looking thing uh, called um, the Monica Fairy Lantern, uh, and it looks basically like tiny lanterns illuminating the dark floor of areas of Asia, Australia, and South America. It's a phenomenon that sounds straight out of a sci-fi movie, uh, with some plants uh, actually eating each other and other organisms, but this genus, uh, commonly called fairy lanterns, is rare but widely distributed, as I just said. Uh, despite being found in multiple regions, 
Little is known about the mysterious um, flora's ecology. They live underground. They have colorful flowers that rise uh, through the soil. They lack chlorophyll, so lack the abol- uh, ability to photosynthesize like the vast majority of plants. Instead, they snack on fungi like um, microrhizomal fungi uh, that you'll find in the soil. And only 90 species have been found. But the one that this article is talking about was believed to be extinct and has been rediscovered. Oh, cool. Very odd uh, looking things. Yeah. Um, I just Googled them whilst you were reading it. And the uh, science alert uh, brings us fossil of a trilobite discovered with its last meal still visible inside. Uh, considering the sheer volume of trilobite specimens in the fossil record and the vast time period from which these fossils originate, the biology of these animals remains something of a mystery, with most of what we know inferred from clues as opposed to hard evidence. But researchers from the Charles University of Czech Republic have now found such an exquisitely preserved specimen that its near-perfect 3D details reveal both silicious uh, pebbles packed into the digestive system with undissolved fragments of shell. Uh, The state of these fragments is equally important to the content itself, uh, because whilst the content gives us a clue as to their diet, the state reveals that the digestive tract was non-acidic, being basic along its entire length, a trait which they share with modern-day arachnids and crustaceans, both of whom are vying for position as the closest living relatives to trilobites around today. Hmm. Um, From science.org, this Brazilian frog might be the first pollinating amphibian known to science. Uh, A nectar-loving tree frog uh, that likely moves pollen from flower to flower. The creamy fruit and nectar-rich flowers of the milk fruit tree, never heard of that before, but it sounds interesting, uh, are known to be irresistible to Xenohyla truncata, a tree frog native to Brazil. And on warm nights, the dusky-coloured frog takes to the trees en masse, jostling from one another to chance for a chance to nibble on the fruit and slurp the nectar. Uh, and in the process, the frogs become covered in sticky pollen grains uh, and pass them from flower to flower. So hmm. this might be the first example of, or the only example of a pollinating frog. Also really cool that it seems to eat fruit and nectar as well. Something you really don't think of with frogs. No, that is, that is odd. Um, and come to us from live science. Giant, never-before-seen, long-necked titan dinosaur unearthed in Europe. A newly identified titanosaur has been described from fossilized remains uh, discovered in Spain. Evidence of at least three individual Garumba titan morelensis were excavated from San Antonio de la Vespa near Morella uh, between 2005 and 2008. The fossils date back to the early Cretaceous period and include vertebrae measuring over a meter in length, and a femur bone around the two-meter mark, suggesting that the animal was at least average-sized for a subgroup of sauropods that often grew to the size of basketball courts. Uh, incidentally, the LA Lakers will be playing their first preseason game tonight, which I'm <laughs> excited about. <laughs> uh, the shape of Garumba Titan's leg and foot bones are indicative of its place as a primitive species, suggesting that Europe may well have been the original roaming grounds of the Titanosaurs. Um, and I've got another one from popsci.com. Uh, scientists still are figuring out how to age the ancient footprints in White Sands National Park. Uh, these are literal human footprints 
that in September 2001, a study, a study published in the journal Science rocked the archaeological world as a team from the United States found a series of footprints preserved in New Mexico's White Sands National Park that were definitive evidence of human occupation of North America during the last Ice Age and date back to between 23,000 and 21,000 years ago. The hmm. scientists have traditionally agreed that the uh, earliest dates that humans were found in North America is somewhere between 14 to 16,000 following the last Ice Age. However, this new study, published yesterday in the journal Quaternary Research um, from scientists at the Desert Research Institute in Kansas, and the University of Nevada and Oregon State uh, cautioned that the, the dating evidence used to age the white sands footprints need improvements to make the claims that change the scientific consensus. So at the moment, there is a huge hoo-ha about some very, very nice human footprints in uh, in a national park. They, they literally mm. just look like they were made two minutes ago. They're that fresh. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, and lastly, from me, uh, rare US bison roundup rustles up hundreds to maintain health of the species. So last Friday, South Dakota's cowpersons participated in the annual roundup of the Custer State Park's 1,500 strong bison herd. The roundup is undertaken in order to uh, health check the herd and vaccinate the calves, an integral part of protecting this vitally important eco-engineer. 60 million bison once thrived in herds that roamed the United States, but by 1889, extinction was just a small drop away, with only a few hundred remaining. Aside from overhunting for pelts and meat to sustain the settlers, the government actually commissioned the slaughtering of the animal in their thousands in order to substantially weaken the First Nation peoples, whose existence depended heavily on the health of large bison herds. Uh, so the disappearance of the herds would force the natives off of their ancestral homelands. And I thought it might just be worth mentioning that this is certainly an effort that uh, should serve as an example to the UK where shallow excuses are lent upon in order to ignore evidence and avoid vaccinating cattle in favour of killing wildlife in their droves. Hmm, definitely. If you can do it with a 1,500 bison, you can do it with any cattle. Well, it's as to whether people want to be motivated to do things like that yeah so well that now brings me to our main article for this week although Aaron, i'm going to give you a choice article a or article b i prepared two articles this week mostly because one of them i initially went with and thought well i might change it you know i might get a different one and then i found another article at the same time and i've done equally the same amount of work on either so i'll give you the choice a or b Okay, let's go with uh, let's go with uh, B. B, right? You have chosen. New study shows African savanna animals fear humans more than lions. So, Ooh, surprise! I'll, I'll tell you at the end what you Kill what you could have won at the end. Okay, um, this has come from ABC uh, online, which is the Australian news site. Mm. So, essentially. It would appear that lions, often seen as the, uh, the the world's most fearsome predators, or certainly Africa's most fearsome predator, had been uh, always thought that they would be the, the animal that things feared the most on the savannah, but not yeah. so. These super predator cats are replaced by, well, a far more terrifying super predator, humans. Um, this really shouldn't be any major sort of... Uh, 
astounding news, but scientists have observed the reactions of 19 different types of animals in a national park in South Africa. Cameras with speaker systems were placed near waterholes during the dry season, and nearly 95% of the species ran more or abandoned the waterholes faster in a response to hearing human noises rather than the roar of a lion. So scientists were looking at the reactions of um, 19 different animals or different types of animal uh, from Kruger National Park that included buffalo, zebra, elephants, hyenas, giraffes, kudu, amongst some of the the most notable species. They put cameras and speaker systems placed around waterholes during the driest part of the year. So the animals are going to be motivated to go to these areas, which is where predators would generally try and sneak up on, on them to make a kill. Uh, unlike the um, the remake they did of the Jungle Book, where they have the um, oh, yeah, the, yeah. the watering hole rules and all these sort of things, in reality, yeah, no, there's there's no rules. The reality is that uh, there's no water there. So people are gonna, well, animals are gonna go thirsty, but carnivores will still carnivore. Um, yeah. Essentially, most animals are very on their guard around watering holes because they they. They do have to be uh, all the time, not just in the dry season. But the cameras were equipped with uh, a movement center uh, sensor, which um, was triggered if an animal passed within 10 meters. And the cameras and speakers broadcast uh, recordings of humans calmly speaking and then lions roaring and hunting sounds, uh, the sounds of things like dogs and gunshots, and finally bird noises uh, as a control sound. And by the end of the experiment, the scientists had thousands of videos to analyze. The videos posted uh, by Western University biologists um, led the study uh, with several types of animals from elephants to warthogs being seen reacting to human voices and making a quicker escape than uh, if they'd have uh, heard a lion's roar. So it really does show you the, um, the extent to which we have, well, basically instilled fear of humans significantly exceeding that of lions uh, throughout yeah. the savannah mammal community. And this this basically means that the wildlife were twice as likely to abandon warthogs uh, and flee 40% of the time faster in response to human sounds than in response to uh, the sounds of a lion or the sounds of hunting going on. And in the end, uh, nearly 95% of the species ran um, uh, more so than, uh, than a lion's roar. So the results gave researchers a challenge to think about when it comes to tourism dependent conservation in Africa. My first thought when I read this is that they probably see far, especially Kruger, they see trucks continuously coming through. I'd imagine mm. on, on a, on a daily basis of probably quite loud tourists. So the animals yeah. know what's going on. They see these things and these results uh, present a significant new challenge for protecting areas and management uh, for wildlife conservation, because it's now clear um, that fear of human beings and wildlife tourists can cause these previously unrecognized impacts that we wouldn't have really thought of beforehand. So we we might be driving away some of these animals from a watering hole because the the tourist trucks are turning up there, you know, um, people are being loud and being tourists let's face it tourists are never never the quietest of uh no. and uh it's always a bit of a, a hard thing obviously you need the ecotourism to keep the place going and 
to keep it relevant um, and to pay for things, to pay for the rangers to protect the animals. But we realistically need to be looking at the impact that we have, not just on physically being in in an area, but the the fear that it associates into animals. But it also got me thinking as well, is that if there's going to be one place where animals have got more of an instilled fear of humans than anywhere else is going to be Africa because we evolved there. We are, we were part of that ecosystem for a period of time. And so animals had got used to us far more than say, well, as I was saying with the, um, the white sands thing, even, even the earliest humans to make it into North America. uh, You know, if you go with the, the most conservative estimate is, is 14,000 years ago. So that's hmm. that's a, a drop in the bucket compared to how long we've been in Africa and um, how how much more the animals there are used to us than animals in other places now. Obviously, nowadays, they more are. But yeah, I, I could see it being part of the psyche. It'd be, it'd be really interesting to see a comparative study of different parts of the world with, with this sort of thing. If they went to, say... Um, one of the major national parks in India, uh, another heavily touristed national park. If they did the same in, say, Yellowstone in in North America, you know, and and basically compare the fear response of all these different animals, It'd be really interesting to see. Actually, yeah, it would be. It mm. would be very interesting. Would you like me to tell you what you could have won, Aaron? Yes, please. So if you'd have gone for option A, you would have got the absolutely bizarre story also coming from the ABC as well of scientists using Age of Empires computer game to simulate ant warfare. Oh, wow. (laughs) And basically they're using it to predict how uh, Australian native species of ant can um, hopefully defeat groups of non native species of ant i didn't realize there's over 30 introduced species of ant into australia which are usually far smaller far more efficient and vicious than australia's ants which are very efficient and vicious some of them some of them actually jump bulldog ants uh, will jump at you um, launch themselves off things they're they're (laughs) they're bizarre and um yeah these scientists have used age of empires which looking at the pictures that came with the articles. Like, oh, I remember playing that. I used to love that game. That was like my thing playing age <laughs> of empires for far too long. And, you know, that's a, uh, it's, all it's the cheat bird's eye view warfare, isn't it? Like command and yep. conquer. Yep. Yeah. I, I never got into those games. I was, I was always, in fact, it took me a while to get into, um, into first person shooters. I always liked third person, um, Oh, Age of Age of Empires was my favorite, especially when they then brought out the. You'd have liked the Age of Mythology one that they brought out, which you could use all the different gods and everything as well. So you that had does the, sound cool. the Norse gods, the Aztec gods, the Greek gods, all really good ones. Um, hmm. Yes, they've used it to compare ant ant fighting patterns, as it were. So, yeah, that is cool. I, very, I get the feeling cool. that somebody was just like, I want to play a game that I used to play years ago as a kid. <laughs> Let's use it in a study somehow. <laughs> how does that work though? How do you how do you they basically use you... it to sort of predict patterns because the the way that the game characters move are predictable. Mm. 
And if they find ones that have similar attributes to how ant groups move, they were able to sort of use them as a, as, as an analog for it. Right, right. I see. And okay. Essentially, the way that the whole thing pans out um, in the article is that Australian species of ant uh, favor far more complex terrain. So things like leaves and, and forest floor with lots of ups and downs and lots of little places. Whereas a lot of these introduced species favor open terrain. So things like pavements, parks and gardens, where it's not complex. So it shows mm. that they might need to think about complexity on the ground in parks and gardens to help favor Australian species of ant over these introduced ones, which cause the economy billions of or millions of billions of uh, dollars of pest control every single year. So, yeah, quite an interesting one as well. Both two very interesting articles, both showing the impact that humans have in just totally different ways. Introduced species and one just us, just our mere presence. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. Should we move on into our creature feature for this week? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. It's the creature feature. Right, well, we're into this week's creature feature. Aaron. Where are we? What are we looking at? Uh, well, this week, uh, Gareth, I've got a very important question for you. To Ooh, start fire ahead. Fire ahead. Fire away. Can you hear? Can you hear that thunder? Um, We're heading no. to a land down under. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I'm sorry. I love that song. <laughs> long as you didn't offer me a Vegemite sandwich, because <laughs> I can't stand the stuff. <laughs> Uh, dude, what a cracking song though uh, on with the creature feature though uh, this week we're on walkabout in the Australian woodlands of Queensland New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia in search of an arbo arboreal herbivorous marsupial who is instantly recognisable even in places of our planet that couldn't be further from their homeland without literally being off world i'm talking of course of koalas now koalas are robust looking covered in fluffy gray hair with lighter almost white puffs around the ears um and just extremely cute and cool um they can reach body lengths of 85 centimeters which is uh surprisingly big to some people but uh i believe uh gareth you are kind of uh privileged like me in that we've held koalas, so we, we can appreciate that. It used to be size. part of my job, yeah. Indeed, yeah. Um, they, uh, they're they actually surprisingly heavy as well, aren't they, Gareth? Yeah, they've got a decent <laughs> amount of weight to them. Yeah, yeah, about 15 kilograms, um, with, with males eventually being about 50% larger than, than the females. But 15 kilograms is pretty pretty hefty. That's decent, yeah, little, yeah. Little guy. Um, now, both sexes have that curved black nose, but males' noses are a little bit more curved than females. So that's another way you can tell them apart. But another way you can tell them apart, if they're not hugging a tree, is uh, that males have a chest gland. So you'll see kind of in their solar plexus, right in the middle of their chest, you'll see a little patch that looks like it's, it's, it's missing a bit of fur. That's their chest gland. Uh, their hands have two opposable digits, which is quite odd and special. We have we have one, and um, and most mammals don't really have any. 
but yeah, these guys have two opposable digits. The first two, so what would be their thumb and their index finger, are opposable to the later three. And their feet assemblage includes the fused second and third digits that are pretty much standard across the Diprodontia order. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's yeah, pretty much all the the wombats, the well, the wombats, the koalas, the possums, not opossums, possums. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a grooming claw. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the koala is also, other than being arboreal and and mostly woodland dwelling, it is a coastal species um, with a range that spans some three hundred and ninety thousand square miles and hugs the eastern and southeastern extremes of Australia. But it is also thanks in large part to uh, wild reintroduction, an island species with many islands such as Kangaroo Island now boasting the species as a resident. Historically, the species was far more widespread with a strong Pleistocene presence in the southwestern reaches of Western Australia. Their, ret- their retreat and eventual localised extinction from this, uh, from, from this area, from the Western lands, can potentially be linked to climate change and the arrival of humans. In this case... Uh, actually hunting at the hands of the indigenous Australians. Oh, I'm not uh, so sure I'd want to eat a koala. I think they'd taste awful. <laughs> I'm not so sure I'd want to take one on, to be honest. <laughs> they can be yeah. pretty vicious when they want to be. The uh, the woodlands and open forests they thrive in tend to range from tropical to temperate, and where they dwell in arid environments, they tend to stick to water, which is so ironically uh contradictory to their name it's quite funny uh actually we haven't we have we haven't actually said anything about the name yet so it's probably a, a good place to do so um yeah so their names they, they're actually really quite cool so first up the scientific binomial name gareth you've got any ideas oh i used to know it off by heart but i'm i'm tripping over myself in my head with the um Tasmanian Devils one. Um oh, yeah. I don't know why it's it's just sort of overriding that knowledge of I do I do know it, but yeah. I don't know it at the same time. You know, I I, I will kick myself the moment you say it. <laughs> yeah, you probably will, yeah. It's uh it's Fascalarctus Cenarius. Uh yeah. the first part is ancient Greek, deriving from the words Fascalos, which means pouch. And Arctos, which means bear. Uh, we've covered that before. Uh, the second bit, Cinereus, is Latin and it means ash-coloured. So its name literally means ash-coloured pouch bear. So the, do you know, the, just before I go into it, do you know the story? Are you aware of the story of the word koala? Is this going to be another one like the, the supposed meaning of kangaroo, which is I don't know? Um, <laughs> suppo- no. Supposedly that's where the word kangaroo comes from is us turning up in Australia and going to the uh, the first Aboriginal we saw and go, what's that thing over there? And him going, kangaroo, kangaroo, which is, I don't know what the hell are you saying, you know? But I think that's more of a more of a, a misinterpretation or a myth that one. So right, I'm assuming yeah. there's probably something similar to that. The the actual name koala is is kind of funny because it's probably a mistake. Koala has got a uh uh. I think an equally fun story. So the word itself comes to us from the Darug language via misspellings and corrupted uh, pronunciations made by white settlers. Uh, the original Darug word is gula, uh, which is spelled G-U-L-A, and it means no water. Um, originally, English orthography 
I used uh, a double O sound to inf- a double O spelling, sorry, to inform uh, the the U um, pronunciation. But over time, that spelling became O A, um, so Oa, and the result was white settlers starting to pronounce the word as a three syllable word. Um, so instead of gula, it became guala, and, and finally adopting the word koala. Now that final form, koala, uh, with a K, is an example of Aboriginal loan words which uh, have made their way into English on a on a global level. But there, that's that's the irony of it: a species that is coastal, dependent on riparian habitats, and strongly linked to water, especially in the more arid stretches of their range was named gula and now koala, which both of which take their meaning from uh, the phrase no water. So uh, I enjoyed that 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 uh, that name that 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 thought process behind the name there. On that note, let's get back to its range and habitat preferences to see how it behaves in these places. As mentioned from the outset, these guys are herbivorous, displaying a strong preference for eucalypt leaves. Uh, and even then it's a strong preference for roughly 30 of those 600 species that are actually on offer to them. And then we can go further still because they are quite fussy because in fact, of those 30 species that they prefer, only three are actually considered absolute koala favorites, koala delicacies, if you will. And these are Eucalyptus microcoris, which is uh, tallow wood, uh, Eucalyptus tereticornis, which is red gum, and Eucalyptus camaldulensis, which is Red River gum. Collectively, these three species form 20% of the koala diet. But they aren't quite as fussy as I've led you all to believe. And they can be found in a wider variety of trees, including acacias, leptospermum, and uh, and melaleuca, sorry, uh, to name a few. There are others uh, I could go on all evening then. Um, But what does seem to be true in terms of dictating their fussiness is that the species chosen to browse upon all appear to be high in protein and water content uh, whilst also being low in fiber and lignin. Uh, Lignin is an organic polymer that aids in cell wall formation. Um, Basically it provides rigidity to, to bark and prevents rot. Uh, It is this high water content that allows the koala to go without actually drinking for prolonged periods, which is likely the reasoning behind its seemingly ironic name. Uh, In practice, females tend to be able to get most, if not all, their water requirements from the leaves of these trees, uh, whereas the larger males, they do actually need to find sources of water to actually drink. And this will come from things like tree hollows uh, or may even occasionally they, they might come down to the ground to drink um but usually yeah it'll be somewhere up high like uh water that it's kind of collected in a in a leaf or yeah in a tree hollow uh but these trees they're not just a source of, of food indeed their caloric in content is so lackluster that koalas must conserve their energy as best as possible uh, for this reason, koalas sleep up to 20 hours a day, rivaling lions in the tournament of laziness. Uh, and most of their activities occur at night. And even then, most of that activity involves uh, around four to six sessions of foraging. During these, uh, dur- during a day, 
they'll need to forage uh, and consume roughly around 400 grams of leaves. And that's just to keep themselves maintained and functioning. And to really conserve energy, they'll actually sleep in the very tree that they're sustaining themselves upon. Um, the only thing that would conserve more energy than, than, than this is if they could adapt an ability to eat and sleep at the very same time. Now, another energy conserving life choice that koalas partake in is selecting their sleeping spots wisely. So during the hotter hours of the day, uh, these guys will descend to the cooler, lower parts of the tree. There, they will hug the tree in order to lose body heat uh, without the need of panting through kind of heat exchange with the tree. They'll also encourage heat loss by sleeping on their stomach or back with the limbs loosely dangled from the sides, uh, exposing as much surface area as possible on the warmer days. Whilst in cooler days, you'll see them basically ball up into a little ball in the in the nook of a of a branch coming out of a of a trunk uh, to retain as much heat as possible. Another key energy saving behavior uh, we we see in koalas is them descending to the lower regions of their trees during high winds to avoid using up that energy. Uh, through clinging to a more flexible branch that's being bashed about in the uh, upper reaches of the tree. Now, koalas, I think it's fair to say, are not the most social of creatures. Home ranges vary depending on habitat availability, uh, but the koala populations in any given place will, uh, will include residents and transients. Now, the residents are usually established adult females, and the transients will be males. On reaching breeding size and maturity, the large adult males will then set up territories close to breeding female residents. They do this by rubbing their chest gland against a tree, sometimes adding a little bit of urine for good measure. Similar to other species, this is probably a method of communication. Other individuals navigating through an area will sniff at the base of a trunk before deciding whether or not to ascend the tree. And it's probably based on the information that they can get from this scent marking that's been done previously. Koalas spend roughly a quarter of an hour per day uh, on social activities, so really not much, and most of which would be better referred to as unsocial uh, activities. Aside from telling others to, uh, to get off their turf via scent glands and urine, koalas also have a pretty cool vocalisation, which we call the bellow. This it is quite, quite uh, noticeable as well. You do oh, hear it from a distance. Yeah, it travels quite far as well. Uh, it, it, I was going to say, it consists of, of two parts. There's the low-pitched rumble of the inhalation uh, and the almost growl-like resonation of the exhale. Uh, and There's it's a bit of a squeak to it at the end as well, I always think. Yes. You know, when the, the, sort of the, the last bit, it goes a little squeaky. Yeah, and that squeak actually comes, comes from infanthood. Um, they lose more and more of that that squeak as they they get older but yeah it does it, you can still hear it at the end of the bellow um so they'll bellow literally any time of the year it's not a seasonal call it, they'll they'll do it any time of year and the low frequency allows the message to travel as i say it travels far and wide uh that message has a different meaning depending on the recipient a male will hear an intimidation tactic and be able to get a sense of size from it uh, a female on the other hand will hear a a call to breed and decide her interest uh, against the size being advertised. But just a, a, 
bit of a side note, koalas are actually known to lie about their size through their bellow. So, um, <laughs> so, so sometimes sometimes they make these judgments. Females and males will make their judgments and act according to incorrect uh, and suspicious uh, information. Another use for the bellow is to announce their arrival and pending ascension of a new tree. Again, this is an antisocial stay off my turf tactic. Uh, females will also bellow when it when they are uh, in in uh, when females will also bellow either when they are threatening another uh, koala or being threatened themselves. And younger koalas who haven't yet developed their uh, their bellow uh, will squeak uh, for very similar reasons. As they grow, that squeak will become more of a squawk, and then the bellow will, will uh, begin to um, begin to develop. Now, these vocalizations will be paired with biting, wrestling, chasing, and a whole array of facial expressions that are meant to convey their level of intolerant annoyance. With this antisocial, grumpy approach to other members of their species, it is a wonder how they ever actually meet in order to mate. But they do, and it's not pretty at all. They <laughs> Antisocial is certainly the right wait i think in australia they'd be referred to as bogans um <laughs> no i mean but, not entirely no they're not they're just they're just grumpy over here they're, they're i think potentially chavs not just grumpy as you're about to hear they're they're pretty violent so maybe I mean, yeah they get violent but sorry go on i don't know as to whether i'd characterize them as being bogans or not um you know they're, they're not sitting there in a in a singlet and flip-flops uh <laughs> drinking a, a cheap beer and uh you know <laughs> just driving around. yeah no it's it's uh no Ho- I, I don't hooning hooning around and yeah in a yeah in a, an old commodore or something yeah no i don't really see them as a, as a bogan i see them yeah as, as grumpy gits that uh will will fight with each other more like that really anti-social sort of grumpy old bloke at the end of the road sort of thing. You know, get off my lawn, I'll come at you and throw a rake at you or something like that, you know. <laughs> right, well, now you've de- defended them against the term bogan. Let's have a look at how they <laughs> mate, shall we? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so males become mature, if you can use that term, uh, <laughs> at the age of four years old, whilst females do so at three. Breeding will take place from October through to May. So any female koalas that might be listening right now, um, you're probably better off in a zoo because females in season will hold their heads further back and display spasms regularly. Uh, But the males are absolutely clueless and notice none of the uh, signs of breeding that females give off. How do we know this? Well, because they'll try to mate with females whether they're displaying these signs or not. So uh, males are completely oblivious to to it. And um, generally speaking, males will force themselves on females, even violently pulling uh, these females from their trees. Um, so, do you still not think they're bogans? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That's a little bit more than a grumpy old man. <laughs> um, so she will try to fight off the uh, male and vocalize extensively, but will eventually submit to a male that is either far more dominant or somewhat familiar. Um, I'm going to make no further comment on that. Um, the, scre- <laughs> the screams and bellows that are expressed 
attract other males to the scene and then fights break out uh, because they're koalas. Um, the older the male, the more scarred he will be. And females will use these fights as an opportunity to judge the strongest potential mate. Now, once mating takes place, the gestation period is around 35 days, at the end of which a single joey is born in its embryonic state. Uh, you did hear that, right? For those of you listening who aren't quite familiar with marsupials, they give birth to very underdeveloped uh, offspring, uh, and koala is no different. That that 0.5 gram embryonic joey will climb into its mother's pouch after it's been born, where it will latch on to one of two teats and continue with the rest of its development. The koala has one of the lowest milk production rates of any mammal, and so it will uh, it will keep producing milk for a longer time, up to 12 months to kind of try and offset this, this lack of milk uh, production. During this time, the mother will not clean her pouch, which is counter to the habits of most marsupials, which are actually very keen on cleaning their pouches. Now, at seven weeks of age, the joey's head grows larger and sex can be determined. At 13 weeks, that joey weighs 50 grams and a fine coat of fur is developing. Uh, also, the eyes are beginning to open. At 26 weeks, it essentially uh, resembles a tiny representation of the, its eventual adult form, and it begins to poke its head out of the pouch to have a look around. Then at six months of age, that joey is being slowly weaned off of milk and onto eucalypt leaves, pre-digested uh, eucalypt leaves, I should say. So if you're thinking that this means that mum chews the leaves up and then regurgitates them for her youngster, you'd be wrong. What this actually means in the case of the koala is that mum goes around eating eucalyptus, then she poos and the joey eats it out of her bum. It's called fecal pap. It is. That was the next the next fact. The poo is known as fecal pap uh, and it is high in good bacteria and starts the joey's gut health development. Uh, but it sounds disgusting. It's also <laughs> um, something that uh, various people I've known who've hand reared all sorts of different marsupials mm-hmm. over the years have have made up for them from a healthy animal to give to an infant animal. Basically, the nickname was poo soup to uh, to get that gut bacteria sort of firing in the joey because all you're feeding it is artificial milk, which isn't necessarily the best for its gut health. So, yeah, you'd quite often uh, make up some some poo soup from a healthy member of its species to uh, introduce into its diet. That's that's really cool. Um, Mm. I've never I've never uh, I've never done that myself. I have heard of it, though. Um, and it's it's nice to hear it in a bit more a bit more detail. Uh, so it's around this time that the joey starts to escape the pouch for regular exploration adventures uh, close to its mother. Now at nine months of age, it is now one kilogram uh, in weight and has permanently left the pouch. Though mum still carries it as it attaches itself to her back. At a year old, the joey is now pushing two point five kilograms. So it's put on an extra 1.5 kilograms um, in weight uh, since leaving the pouch. And mum is pregnant again. And at this stage, she cuts her bond with the infant permanently. And that young koala is now left to uh, to fend for itself and find a new home. 
now, in the wild, koalas may live to be about 18 years old, though males are unlikely to reach this age. A life of fighting, in addition to uh, being more likely to spend time on the floor than females will, is probably what causes this discrepancy in life expectancy. Whilst the, uh, whilst the habit of spending so much time high up doesn't seem to be reflected in injury or fatality from falls, the habit of spending so much time eating does have a profound effect on their health. Uh, for example, it appears that dental wear actually sets in really early in a koala's lifetime um, and chewing efficiently decreases fast in their mature years, uh, leading to a state of starvation, which is often what kills these guys. Uh, predation, on the other hand, doesn't actually seem to be much cause for concern though pythons eagles and even dingoes may snatch young koalas the adults are relatively safe they also don't tend to suffer too many parasites though ticks mites and bacteria do cause health issues disease is very much more of an issue to them however with both chlamydia and uh, koala retrovirus uh, that latter one actually being related to koala immune deficiency syndrome uh, these are the two major concerns, and they they are responsible for a high number of koala deaths every year. Koalas are also keenly sensitive to environmental struggles. Things like bushfires are a major example. Like we were talking to uh, our guest koala, uh, like we were talking to our guest Tani a few months ago, uh, especially considering the flammable nature of eucalyptus trees in particular. As the fire reaches the base of the trunk, the koala actually climbs up higher, effectively trapping itself. Um, similarly, dehydration due to hotter weather can cause death. So yeah, uh, climate change is very, very much um, uh, a, a danger for these guys. It is considered vulnerable, and this is actually quite a recent reclassification. Ten years ago, it was of least concern. No doubt the ever-changing climate, hotter temperatures, and more frequent fires are actually to blame here. Some of its biggest human-led threats include the lack of protection afforded to it by uh, various governmental groups and, of course, habitat destruction. The range has become severely fragmented and broken, mostly due to uh, urbanisation of the coastal regions it inhabits. And whilst this species can survive some amount of urbanisation where, you know, like the correct selection of trees are, plent are plentiful, uh, it does still present extra challenges that they aren't used to, namely our pets and our vehicles. Um, being run over is is quite a uh, is quite common, and also attacks from dogs. It would seem. I've heard uh, about so many of them being attacked by dogs that so that is probably second most, yeah, high death rate uh, other than cars. Yeah, uh, it's the same with the cassowaries, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, rural areas aren't havens for them either though as the habitat is, is largely cleared for farming purposes not to mention timber production so there's not really any habitat there for them to, uh, to live in uh, but the animal is one that Australia and the wider world to be fair holds in very high esteem despite their aggressive dislike of everything except for food and sleep they have an extremely cute appearance making them incredibly popular in the public subconscious Koalas are arguably the animal which is conjured in people's minds when talking about Australian biodiversity, and they are hugely popular in the zoos that do house them. They're also responsible for a large percentage of the tourism uh, sourced income that Australia enjoys, 
So they're pretty important animals uh, and ambassadors for the for the country. But they're also extremely important animals to the human culture of Australia. They feature in the mythology of Dreamtime. Some believe it was a koala that aided the indigenous people in rowing to Australia. Others believe that a koala was killed and its intestine was used to create a bridge for the people to reach the continent from other places in the world. And others still call upon the koala for sage advice. And then there's the more lighthearted fondness for turning them into a pseudo cryptozoological beast. Uh, Gareth, you will, of course, be very familiar with the drop bear, which is the evil twin species of the koala. A the most lethal creature on the planet. Yes. Uh, it's a carnivorous version of the species, vicious and sinister, a nonsense <laughs> told to scare people and have a laugh at the same time. Um, oh, yeah. I can still remember in, in Scouts being told, you know, you don't go wandering out. Otherwise, the drop bear will get you. <laughs> I like the name. I think the, the name is fantastic. The drop bear. The drop bear. Um, <laughs> Why isn't there a horror film? That's what I want to know. There should be. If you, there's so many films about about a megalodon and Sharknado. There should yeah, be a drop bear a, movie. There's even a sloth horror film now. Yeah, there is. Um, but yeah, that in a, in, in a eucalyptus leaf is... Um, is your you mean in a, in a gum nutshell? In a gum nutshell, yeah. That is the uh, koala. Uh, an incredibly cute, if, um, if extremely, uh, you know, antisocial uh, animal. Um, but nonetheless, very cool. You didn't mention how they they become a totally different animal when the sun goes down. Because they are... Most of the day, like you say, they're, they're sitting there doing nothing mm-hmm. uh, of a night, totally and utterly jumping around, moving far quicker than you would imagine them. They're just a totally different animal yeah. uh, when, when the sun's down. And they, uh, they're, just, they're just that little bit more alert, I think, most of the day. I think they're, they're quite happy to sit there and have people assume that they are just these balls of fur that occasionally move. But well, at night they they move with some speed. Yeah, well, it's it's at night when they're flipping off the popo. <laughs> Get, well, getting antisocial I mean, behaviour order from 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 the local <laughs> government. <laughs> I, I have told you the 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 tale of of how I encountered one whilst whilst wandering looking for um like a McDonald's or something of a night. No, don't think you have. No. Years and years ago, we were at a friend's house. We'd all been drinking and it had got to must have been about two o'clock in the morning. And it was an area that none of us were particularly familiar with. Um, and we thought, well, we're all hungry. We want to go get something to eat. We'll go and see if there's a, a corner shop somewhere or a McDonald's or something like that. It was all a bit of a fool's errand anyway. We were never really going to find anywhere at sort of two in the morning. But that's that's neat. You know, that's not how a drunk <laughs> brain works. Um, so we start walking out wandering down this road and it's it's quite foggy quite misty and we see what we think is like a bulldog or something wandering towards us uh-huh. as we get closer like, it's that's an odd looking bulldog oh 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 it's a koala and it was a koala walking in the opposite direction to us just down the down the street and <laughs> we sort of stopped realized it was a koala something you don't often see them down on the ground mm-hmm. um and and just sort of you know wandered past us. We sort of followed it for a, a minute or two, and then it just kept on its way. And 
we kept on ours. So <laughs> yeah, very like the weirdest you know thing to come across at that sort of time of the morning. Not what you expect to uh, to really find. Um, I was I was half expecting this story to end with one of you being savaged by it. No, we we <laughs> we were all quite like animal animal but you know animal people so we weren't uh likely to go and do anything stupid and also i i had one of them when i was uh a, one of the koala handlers at the first place that i worked at um in, in australia we we would take them out for the the tourist handling sort of thing everyone you know goes absolutely nuts about having a koala put on them mm. and essentially a good chunk of my day at that point would be carry the koalas out stand there put the koala onto a person, take the koala off a person, put the koala onto a person, take the koala, you know, backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards. The, yeah. What the koalas must have thought of the whole thing was just bizarre. They must have thought, <laughs> what the hell are these humans doing? Why do they need to touch us? Um, but just completely, uh, you know, just because, the, the, like you were saying, they weigh about 15 kilos, so they're, they're hefty animals. They are hefty, and yeah. Taking taking them back to... Um, it was either taking them back or taking them out to the actual area. They they stayed off show for the rest of the time, so they weren't bothered by people. And uh, we we went we walking back. One of them, uh, it slipped, and it's one of its big claws on its hand sort of dug into my neck. And I don't know how. It just sort of seemed to press onto like a nerve or something. And I just sort of went and sort of <laughs> went down. And it was weird. It was like somebody pressed a button and went, "No, you can't walk anymore." Like the Vulcan death touch. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was like yeah, it's like a nerve pinch. I just went, "No, I'm down," and I'm on my knees with this koala just with its claw stuck into the back of my neck. It was, oh, it was weird. It was such a weird feeling. Uh, note to but self: yeah. if, if there's ever a koala part two, mention <laughs> they have a Vulcan death touch. That yep, Spock's like acupuncture attack is uh, based on koalas. <laughs> Indeed. Right. Yeah. Well, shall we move on? Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right. Well, we're into this week's emails, uh, and we're going to start things off with last week's question, which was, "What is your favourite plant and why?" Which uh, I I expected uh, quite a bit of debate. This, it's a very hard question to answer. You know, what is your one singular favourite plant? Uh, but we have some uh, really good answers uh, on this one. Jason Palmer has put uh, Pulmeria. Uh, it's the tropical flower that has the most amazing warm tropical scent. The flowers are uh, perfectly shaped in just a very simple yellow and white way, which always reminds me of the tropics. Zara Jackson has put snake plant because it's the only one that has survived the neglect in my home. I mean, they're pretty hardy uh, sense of area. They're, they're pretty good. Uh, Matt Jack Dupe has put, I'm quite particular to aces, Japanese maple for outdoors and bromeliads for indoors. I like mm. bromeliads. The only issue I have with them is once they flower, that's it. So I've got a pineapple upstairs that flowered and had fruit on it. It's now just green so it's <laughs> it's it's not as good as it could look pineapples have got a really boring just plain green to their leaves there's no stripes or anything to them so it's a bit of a foliage one anyway that's just my minor gripe with bromeliads the rest of the, i mean i just love that family of plants as well but yeah anyway uh catherine ames has put hmm had to think about this rather than pick a plant that just seems to appeal to me 
something that supports other life, maybe ivy. Uh, walked past some of the uh, some the other day and saw many in, uh, species of insect visiting the flowers. I also read recently that isopods eat the pollen, birds roost in the vines, and feral pigeons who lived on my balcony collected dried leaves for their nests. The glossy leaves give us greenery all year round and adorning bare trees. There's plenty enough for us to pick uh, for our homes, and I added some to my wedding bouquet. Very nice. Um, a mile and a half, uh, Paris has put artichokes, because yummy, <laughs> which is fair enough. <laughs> I, I've never actually... This, this then led to a huge conversation where I said, I've never tried an artichoke, but they don't look appealing to me. No. What about you? They, they don't... I'm not, I'm not keen. No, it's like asparagus. It just... It doesn't look right as a food. They grow in a very odd manner as well. You know, that they actually just grow like that out the ground. They're not like the you you'd imagine there's more to the plant, if you know what I mean. Like a broccoli, there is leaves and everything that come off the side. Asparagus, that's that's almost it. That's what they kind of look like. So it's a very odd thing to uh, to see growing out of the ground. Uh, anyway, um, some really good answers there. Um, some edible ones, some not so edible ones. Ivy's quite a good one. It grows everywhere. And if you end up with dead ivy that's been on the side of a tree and you cut it off, it makes an amazing backing in a reptile enclosure because it's all that vines that have almost merged into each other and become this sort of melded wooden mesh. So it looks really cool. What I figured for this week's question, based on... Uh, on that story I told at the end there of uh, an odd encounter with a koala at two in the morning whilst trying to find uh, somewhere to go and get some fast food. I, I figured this this week's question should be, uh, what's the oddest animal encounter you've ever had? You know, was it in a bizarre situation? Was it something you didn't expect to happen? Did something walk into your house you didn't expect, like a moose or a badger or something, you know? Aaron, what's your oddest animal encounter? Wild animal, I think we should add. Oddest wild animal encounter. Um, oh, yeah, I, I got a good one, actually. Yeah, so this was when I was in Malaysia. I might have told this story before, but I ho I'm hoping not. Is this the, the one where you were basically sat there and there were tigers off in the bushes somewhere and, and they <laughs> they found out like a day later? No, no, although I have definitely told that. You definitely that told on that one before, yeah. yeah. So... When, when I was in Malaysia, I actually only had a few dreadlocks. I didn't have... So I've got, like... I went from having, like, a full head of dreadlocks to cutting some of them off and having, like, a select a select few, which sounds really weird, but there was actually an, an order to the, to, to this. Um, keep it, keep then, in mind, listeners, that we had a, uh, a an email message the other day that said that they, they thought that all of us... Must look like John Oliver, <laughs> which yeah, to, wh Eric to which couldn't... I said, "Who's John Oliver?" <laughs> what? You couldn't look further from from him. Um, no, realistically, Aaron. No, uh, I've seen him. No, last week tonight, brilliant. He's a he's also in Community. Um, he was the the voice of Zazu in the new version of The Lion King. Arguably, the second best Zazu there is. Um, yes, neither of us look exactly like John Oliver. <laughs> who said that we look like John Oliver? Anyway? I can't remember now, uh, uh, but I it did tickle me. That was quite a uh, quite a funny comment. I, anyway, I had to, back go, to, I had to Google who he was. I realised I I actually do know of him and have watched stuff of him. I just didn't know that his name belonged to him. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, in Malaysia, I didn't have as many dreadlocks as I have now. I I, I felt something burning on the back of my neck, 
And I, I, at first I just thought it was the sun, which is a little bit silly because I was in a jungle and it was quite dense jungle. There was no chance I'd been sunburned. Um, but that's what I thought. As time went on, I, I spoke I spoke to our guide and I said, I said, hey, um, Shri, can you just have a have a look at my neck there? Like it feels really irritated. It feels starting to feel hot. And he had a look and he said, it is a bit red, but I can't see anything there, like bites or anything. Okay. So carried on through the jungle. Five minutes there. Okay, Shri, there's something there. It's, it's actually, it's now get, getting a little bit like, you know, inflamed and a little bit painful now. Yeah, look, yeah, it's, it's looking really raw, but there's there's nothing, there's nothing there. I say, you sure there's nothing like hiding in my hair or nothing? <laughs> no, no, nothing there. So carry on. Eventually, I'm like not only getting concerned, I'm now starting to get a little bit annoyed <laughs> about this. So I start going, and just just by chance, like I noticed that there was one, there was there was one more dreadlock than there should have been. So I, at the time I had, I think, five dreadlocks and I counted six. <laughs> and I was like, hang on, what's that? And I picked it off and it was this long, fat, blonde caterpillar, really furry. And obviously <laughs> it had been, been like, you know, loose. It had been pissed off because my dreadlocks are probably banging it in the head and it's getting annoyed. So it's like, you know, shed, oh, hairs, shed some yeah. of those fine hairs into my neck. And causing me a lot of uh, a lot of grief, um, but as Shri said, look on the bright side. It wasn't uh, it wasn't something really venomous because there's no way we could get a helicopter to you and you to the hospital in time to save you. <laughs> well, this is true, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, that would be. I think that I've had many odd wildlife encounters, but that would be the oddest one. The extra, the story of the extra dreadlock, and it <laughs> did. It was it was as blonde as my dreadlocks uh, are. So I can understand why Shri didn't uh, didn't didn't pick up on it. Hmm. No, that's pretty cool. Well, you, dear listener, can send us in your uh, wildest or your oldest wildlife encounter to our Facebook page where that uh, will be going up. But now comes the time in the show. Uh, I get to talk about the many ways that you can help us out. The first uh, of these is, well, doing what you're doing. It's listening to the uh, the episodes. Always really, really good obviously. Uh, and the next most important, I would say, uh, is what some of these wonderful folks are doing, which is joining our Patreon. By supporting us on Patreon, you're helping us to make the podcast bigger and better and expand how we do things. Uh, so a big thank you to the following people. Aaron. No, thank you to you. No, no, no. That's uh, to the following people. Aaron, <laughs> stage direction. So we have Jen Greenhall, Chelsea McKee, Connie P, Jennifer Greenhall, and Fogtober. Fantastic. They've all been, uh, well, signed up to our Patreon now and have, have yeah, done that. So if you f- uh, feel like you want to uh, chuck in a buck that way, you can do so. But money isn't everything. Uh, and you can help us out uh, in an even more simple way by liking, subscribing and leaving us a review on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on. Uh, tell a friend, tell an enemy, shout at a koala up a tree, but make sure it's not a drop bear, otherwise it might get you. <laughs> and by doing things like that, you are helping us out immensely. Uh, and a big thank you from myself and Aaron it is helping the podcast grow in all manners, ways and shapes and forms. And um, yeah, a big thank you to everyone for for helping us make the podcast as good as it can be. Yeah. Right. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of this week's episode. Aaron, big thank you for coming along. 
Yeah, thank you for having me once again. Thank you to our listeners and our and our Patreon supporters. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for koalas. <laughs> yeah. And drop bears. Be thankful for drop bears as well. <laughs> that they drop haven't bears, got yeah. you. Like I say, and if there's any Hollywood producers out there, drop bear the film. I think it could work. You know, I could see it now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. So, Aaron. Yeah. You wanted to live in a tree on the most low nutritional food possible. I did, yeah. It seemed like a good idea. <laughs> what did it cost you? Uh, all my energy. And a bit, a bit of your brain power as well. Mm. But at least yeah, you got... Not, not much of that. But at All least... my social skills, they're gone. <laughs> but at least your breath smells nice. <laughs>